For now, though, we're going to talk about cryptocurrencies, a very hot topic these days, often leaving people looking a little puzzled, I find, myself included. And of course, as Russia's invasion of Ukraine uh, happened, it prompted those tough economic sanctions and lots of speculation about if and how the anonymity and lack of state control over cryptocurrencies would allow some to skirt those rules. I saw a recent story on Al Jazeera about from a financial source in the United Arab Emirates saying that Russians were buying up property in Dubai using crypto as a way of getting their money out of other jurisdictions and into the Gulf state. Well, let's try and mine some truth on this one. Joining me now is Daramir Runitki. He's professor of anthropology at the University of Victoria, and he serves as director of the County Counter Currency Laboratory. Welcome to the show, Daramir. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks a lot for having me, Ben. It's great to be with you this evening. I was going to ask you, countercurrency laboratory sounds like a fascinating thing. What exactly do you look at? Uh, yeah, it's a really exciting initiative, Ben. Um, one of the things that we've done is we've, we've set up this laboratory to study uh, different forms of money. Um, today, money stands at an important and really, I think, exciting crossroads, um, you know, there's new forms of money being created. You mentioned uh, crypto in the introduction. Uh, there's also a history of monetary experimentation, community currencies being created. Things like the euro aren't that old. Um, and so I think we're really standing at a new frontier, a new communications technology, smartphones. These have all really changed money and uh, transformed it into something that's, that's, that's a really exciting area for research and inquiry. So the Countercurrency Laboratory is an interdisciplinary social science initiative that's dedicated towards uh, promoting research and understanding of the past, present, and future of money and the social implications of money trans monetary transformations. Because, of course, when I was growing up, credit cards seemed pretty fancy, but we still carried coins. And, you know, if you go to a museum, you can find coins, as you mentioned in the laboratory's um, write-up about it. You can find coins that are thousands and thousands of years old. Money didn't change that much for a very long time. And now it seems like it's just in hyperspeed. Yeah, that's a great point. You know, one of the things that's really interesting, if we think about the long history of monetary technologies, uh, coins are... 3,000 years old. Um, they were invented in uh, ancient Greece around 700 BCE or thereabouts. Um, but they're still a form of, of currency that we use today. I mean, if you've ever tried to park your car at a parking meter, we find coins extremely useful. So that, that's a very old technology. Uh, banknotes are somewhat more recent, but they're still an old technology. You know, the first banknotes came into widespread use around 500 or so years ago, we still find cash a, a really convenient and easy form of, of money to use. Um, uh, and as you mentioned, money has become increasingly digital, increasingly abstract. And uh, these have raised really, I think, important and interesting questions that we're trying to address in the lab. I mean, one of the things about digital money, not just credit cards, but increasingly things like cryptocurrency or some of the uh, digital currencies that have been proposed by both corporations and nation states um, is that they offer the promise for real convenience, right? These are really, e it would be very, it's very easy just to be able to uh, tap our phones at the checkout counter of a store and be able to, to walk out with um, our groceries or some food or, or whatever we're purchasing. 
Um, but they also come with a downside and some risks. And we're interested in, in, in thinking about these as well. Um, these systems, as they become more ubiquitous, they enable institutions like corporations and states to offer all kinds of instant analysis and surveillance. There's a possibility for censorship. They can enforce blacklists. People can be targeted on the basis of their race, their nationality, their gender, their sexuality, their migration status. So uh, one of the things we're interested in thinking about is the kind of social engineering that might be in enabled by digital monetary technologies. Interesting. I, I, I mean, I guess now we'll get to crypto because one of the things that I found that I always find fascinating is I remember when those sanctions were first introduced, those very strict sanctions against Russia. I was just reading on Twitter reactions to it. And of course, there was a whole bunch of people saying, well, they'll never work because of crypto. And I was thinking, well, what exactly does that mean? And how could it possibly be true? Um, and we, you know, I went looking for some examples. Obviously, there are some in Russia who are heavily invested in crypto as a hedge either against the ruble, which is notoriously volatile, um, but, you know, and, and it being spent. So what exactly is a cryptocurrency and how could it be used in this case or is it being used to skirt these sanctions? Yeah, there's a number of different forms of cryptocurrencies. There's um, cryptocurrencies like Ether, um, but the most ubiquitous one is Bitcoin, and that's the one that I think has got the most um, traction and most press. And the really amazing thing about Bitcoin is that it um, enables um, anonymous transactions to take place. Uh, it uses something called a blockchain that, ena that enables people to, to basically make anonymous monetary transactions. Um, the, the, the network, the Bitcoin network is decentralized. So it exists on all the computers that are part of the digital network around the world. Anyone who's, who's running the Bitcoin software um, actually has a copy of the Bitcoin digital ledger on their machine. And that's how these transactions can be validated, right? And it avoids the problem of double spending because everyone has a copy of the ledger, all these dispersed network of computers has a copy of the ledger, every transaction is recorded. But the transactions are recorded anonymously through a private key. So they're not indexed to a person's name. Now, it's this decentralized nature of the network <clears throat> that some have speculated will enable um, Russians who want to participate in international uh, monetary uh, or in international business to uh, evade the sanctions uh, because they can operate anonymously on this decentralized network. And, and because it's not, the, you know, it's not like uh, the Canadian dollar or the Euro where there's a central bank and there's a, a network of, 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 of government a, a banking, a government banking infrastructure, and then a network of private banks that monitor uh, financial transactions, um, that has uh, led some to speculate that um, cryptocurrency can serve as a, a means of avoiding the kinds of very stiff financial trans, um, sanctions that um, Western governments have put on, on Russians. Uh, now, I think you're right to be some suspicious about this. I mean, you mentioned, you know, maybe people are using it to to um, purchase property in, in Dubai. Um, but I, I think crypto 
heretofore it's really been used more as a store of value than a medium of exchange. So globally, the daily transaction values in cryptocurrency are usually only about between five and $10 billion. Now that sounds like a big number, but it's an order of magnitude, maybe several orders of magnitude less than the amount of transactions in the overall financial system, right? So it's really not clear that there's enough crypto bandwidth or crypto infrastructure to facilitate uh, the kind of transactions on a, the, the volume of transactions that would be taking place on a scale uh, big enough to really enable Russians to use crypto to evade the financial sanctions that have been levied. And I read somewhere that in fact, people are using crypto to donate to Ukraine. Well, yeah, and that's the really interesting thing. And, it, you know, I think it, it illustrates why we started this lab uh, is because, you know, money is a black box, is often thought of as a black box. You know, it's like something that, and, and most forms of infrastructure are like this, right? We, they just work. You know, we don't think about the road system. We don't think about the electrical grid, uh, maybe until there's a blackout or something like that. But uh, money is, is really the same thing, right? It's a form of infrastructure that we really don't have to think about because it often works so seamlessly uh, and whatnot. So that's one of the things where we're interested in, in really unpacking with the lab is to, to take this thing that we take for granted, money, and really subject it to critical social scientific and uh, human scientific reflection. Think about how it works, why it works, who it works for, uh, these kind of questions that often you know, people just take for granted. So you're absolutely right to answer the question. Um, in fact, several days after the Russian invasion, uh, Mikhailo Fedorov, who's the vice prime minister of Ukraine, called on people around the world to demonstrate their solidarity with the country by making cryptocurrency donations. And it's really fascinating within just the number of, of days, I think three or four days, the number of donations that the volume of donations that the Ukrainian state had um, attracted exceeded 50 million US dollars in cryptocurrency. And this is a direct donation. I mean, people can just log into a digital wallet and transfer this kind of digital value, Bitcoin or Ether or other uh, cryptocurrencies to uh, support the, the Ukrainian state and, and uh, you know, Ukrainian humanitarian efforts and so forth. So it really is working on both sides of this conflict. And that's, again, you know, something that we're really interested in unpacking uh, in the lab. I'm speaking with Daramir Rudnicki, professor of anthropology at the University of Victoria and director of the County Countercurrency Laboratory. We're talking about cryptocurrencies, the war in Ukraine, uh, money in general. Uh, the history of money in general, and also perhaps how cryptocurrencies could or can or shall or aren't being used to evade sanctions placed against Russia. When we come back, a little bit more about why someone would donate using crypto instead of just donating using regular money, uh, if the Ukrainian government, for instance, put out a call like that. That's next. I'm back talking cryptocurrencies, money, digital payments, all forms of payments with Daramir Rudnicki, and professor of anthropology at the University of Victoria, where he also serves as the director of the Counter Currency Laboratory. Uh, Daramir, one of the things I was interested about, and again, I was going to ask you, I guess I asked you this question coming out of the break, was why would someone donate Bitcoin instead of or crypto instead of just donating straight, even from a request, even with a request from the Ukrainian government, for instance? That's a great question, Ben. Um, 
Well, there, there are a few reasons why someone might find crypto more appealing than uh, do- donating um, uh, through other means. Uh, for one thing, uh, cryptocurrency en- enables a kind of anonymity that is not available with, with banking systems. So if you think of even like an e-transfer or a, a digital um, a, a bank transfer, you have to like contact your bank. Uh, your bank has to now contact the government of Ukraine's bank. <laughs> the government of Ukraine's <laughs> bank then has to credit their debit your account or your bank debits your account and then credits uh, the Ukrainian the Ukrainian government's bank credits their account. That's a very long, um, complicated process. It often involves fees, right? So you have to pay fees when you use the conventional banking system. Uh, and those are trackable trans- transactions. I can think of a lot of reasons why people, particularly, you know, given the behavior of the Russian state, uh, why people might be a little nervous about uh, donating money to to um, a country that that the Russian army is in has invaded. Right. right. I mean, I, I certainly wouldn't want Putin coming after me. <laughs> True, uh, true and, enough. And knowing, knowing my my political activities, so or your, or I think your, the anonymity your is yeah. yeah, exactly. So I mean, I think you know um, the anonymity is a real appealing feature. I mean, you know, we might not worry too much about it here in in Canada, but in other countries, it could be a real concern. The lower fees are an attraction. Uh, the lack of financial intermediaries, right? This is basically a direct transaction where there's no there's no intermediary banks that are monitoring these transactions tracking them collecting fees on them so there's there's some real upsides to to cryptocurrency transactions what did you make and then i'm going back a bit now uh to the trucker convoy to the protest to the blockade of ottawa and there was certainly a lot of talk about cryptocurrencies back then i believe um police uncovered 34 crypto wallets tied to fund funding uh the protests but they cracked down on them. And I guess, if I'm not mistaken, please correct me if I'm wrong, the issue is that at some point, your digital currency has to become real currency. And that's where they can find you, or that's where they can crack down. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Ben. That is the inflection point, right? It's the point at which you try to turn this digital virtual currency into money that's easier to spend at, you know, your... Um, I don't know if you're a trucker, what do you need? Spare tires or something like that. Right. <laughs> so if you want to, you want to buy spare tires or, or whatever for your truck, you you know, you're going to have to turn that into a money that the tire company can recognize, right? Most, uh, last time I bought tires, I don't know about you, but, but they weren't taking Bitcoin <laughs> at the right. tire shop. Not yet. So, not yet. Yeah. Not yet. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it's, 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 it, that really is the inflection point. And I think that's going to be the real issue for, for people in Russia as well is, well, you know, I've got this cryptocurrency and it, you know, there's, it's becoming more widespread, but really uh, the, the, the limit, the limit to it has been, people have really treated it as more of an uh, security, an investment vehicle. And in that sense, a store of value rather than a medium of exchange. And so it's not a it's not at this point really a widespread enough medium of exchange in order to make it a kind of viable currency for people to do everyday business with. 
A quick question on behalf of my wife, who talks about mobile payments a lot and is always fascinated by them. Of course, we go. Mm. she's from southern China. We go back a lot. There's a lot of mobile payments in southern China. It's very popular. We don't see the same thing here. Why is that? Why does Canada feel like we're so far behind, Forget not to mention the U.S.? But why does it feel like we're far behind when it comes to using new technology to pay for things in the regular course of life? That's a great question, um, Ben. Um, and, and mobile money is, is spreading around the world in not just in southern China, but it's, it's, it's really popular in places like Africa now. And it's creating real opportunities for people in, in developing countries and in parts of the global south in order to participate and to access banking and financial services. Um, so there's some really fascinating experiments in countries like Kenya, where they have a system called M-Pesa that enables people with just a, a, not even a smartphone, just one of the old type of cell phones that we used to use uh, here in Canada, you know, the, I I don't know what you call it, a dumb phone, Uh, (laughs) uh, you know, there's a very simple phone, but but they're using these in parts of of, of rural uh, Kenya uh, that don't have banking services at all in order to to basically... um, transfer money, transfer value across distances, and, and to create a kind of rudimentary banking system for, for, for the so-called unbanked, which is, after all, the majority of the population. Now, to get back to your question, then. Um, uh, we have about a minute. We, sorry, okay. A, I, will, our- I will hurry up here. Um, you know, one of the reasons, I mean, one of the reasons is that there's a bit of conservatism in, in Canada. But the other thing is that our existing payment system actually worked quite well. You talked about credit cards at the outset. Uh, with so many people, with credit cards being so readily available, there's very little incentive for people to move to these, these newer technologies because things like credit cards are, are so widely accepted, chip cards are so widely accepted and can be uh, used so, so, so um, easily. Daramir Rudnecki, thank you so much for your insight today. It's been fascinating. I look forward to having you back and good luck with the Countercurrency Laboratory. It sounds like a great idea. Thanks a lot, Ben. It was a real fun talking to you and uh, have, a, have a great evening.